Today's dead idea, self-mummification. And this is part two of our short two-part series. And today we are going to hear stories of some of the actual Japanese Buddhist monks who turned themselves into mummies through a 3,000-day regimen of tree-eating and spiritual exercises. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, whose 3,000-day regimen of Netflix binge-watching is probably bringing her as close as anything to self-mummification. She's <laughs> watching a lot of Call the Midwife lately. <laughs> <laughs> With me once again are my co-hosts for the day, Nick. So this is really the slacking off on Rachel series, isn't it? <laughs> and Anna. I'm self-embalming for great merit. <laughs> Also drinking some uh, attempts at recreating a twenty-seven hundred-year-old beer. Oh yeah, is this our fake? Is this our fake? Per, um... Sure, why I not? think we might as well do the plug. <laughs> might yeah. as well do it. Okay, uh, fake, fake sponsor. Tonight we are today we are drinking Dogfish Head Midas Touch Ancient Ale, which is described as somewhere between wine and mead, an original ancient ale made with ingredients found in twenty-seven hundred-year-old drinking vessels in the tomb of King Midas. It involves barley, honey, white muscat grapes, and saffron, and I'm digging it. It is a lot yummier than our attempt at recreating a 2,700-year-old beer recipe, I've got to say. Depressingly so. It tastes pretty beery, but then a little bit of a hint of the white grapes at the mm-hmm. end, I think. All right, well, we do actually have an episode to get to today. So we do? We're going to be talking uh, about Buddhist mummies and have stories of the actual monks that did this. So, to set the scene here, first, I want you to imagine. Imagine that you have spent the last 3,000 days, that's equal to 8.2 years of your life, on an increasingly strict diet, cutting out various grains while subsisting mostly on pine needles, nuts, and resins, and pilgrimaging three times daily from your temple to the peak of Mount Yudono, where you douse yourself with freezing mountain water while venerating the cosmic Buddha in the form of a large, sulfurous, hellish orange rock from which a hot spring issues. And now, finally, your time has come. You didn't mention the sulfurous rock part in the last episode. No, I'm adding in a lot more details now, because this is the story time, right? Huh. Your 3,000 days are up. It's it's an actual detail, though. That's historical, though. Right? The, The sulfurous rock is actually worshipped as the embodiment of the cosmic Buddha. Dainichi Nyorai, I think is the name of him. Your 3,000 days are up, and you have constructed an underground cell for yourself with walls of pine wood, little more than a wooden crate, just large enough for you to sit. You are handed a bell and a bamboo tube through which to breathe, and then your compatriots place the cover over your cell, which leaves only a small opening for your tube. You begin chanting and ringing the bell. And I imagine between chants is when you take breaths. I have to imagine it that way, I guess. They will seal you in when they hear your bell stop ringing. You are encased in darkness as you await the inevitable, concentrating on your destination in the Tusita heaven of the future Buddha, Maitreya. This would have been the experience of pretty much every monk that did this. There was a a considerable amount of variety in the ways they got there and probably the ceremony as well, but in basic outlines... That'd be pretty much what you were facing at the end. 
After 3,000 days, if you do change your mind, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was just thinking, it's like, okay, I've been eating resin and pine nuts this long, I may as well just get in the box. Yeah, well. So, interestingly, we don't know of any nuns that did this. Um, hmm. All of them, as far as that we know of so far, were male. They were monks. And in some ways, that's not that surprising, because traditionally, in Asian, you know, traditional Buddhism, the monastic community has always been pretty male-oriented. I mean, there are orders of nuns, but there's a status hierarchy between them. So it seems to hold true here, too. At least as far as the ones we've discovered so far, was only engaged in by men. But maybe we just haven't found the nuns yet. I don't know. Interestingly, there was a specific stipulation that females were forbidden to step foot on Gassan, which is uh, one of the three holy mountains. They had to end their pilgrimage at the nearby Churenji temple. And then you could just see Gassan in the distance, this mountain. And I actually visited that particular temple and took a photo from the temple of the mountain, which would be exactly what those women would have seen mm -hmm. at the end of their journey. So, And I'll put that on the episode post as well on the website too. Also, another thing, just before we get into this too much, we should emphasize once again for listeners who may be just tuning in, like last time, I just want to say that the self-mummification thing is definitely a fringe practice within a fringe cult, which in no way represents mainstream Buddhism. It's pretty much like the snake handlers of the Appalachian Mountains, who are Christians, but in no way represent mainstream Christianity. About like that, in terms of how it reflects on the other Buddhists in the world. Buddhist mummification emerged from within a kind of mingled Buddhist uh, Shinto folk custom-y kind of religion that evolved in northern Japan called Shugendo, which was an ascetic cult concentrating on austerities and ascetic feats. You know, a mixture of Japanese shamanism, esoteric Buddhism emerging through that confluence in northern Japan. And even within Shugendo, self-mummification was always a rare and radical feat. And it's no longer practiced today. It was outlawed in 1868. And today, even most Japanese are unaware that these mummies even exist. So wait, if it was an outlawed in 1868, how did our uh, 20th century guy sneak under? Not we'll everybody follows the law. Mm. Exactly. We'll get there. So the goal of self-mummification, as we heard last time, is basically to make a difference. You become a sokushin butsu, or Buddha in the flesh, in order to help others, because the idea being that everything in the universe is all part of that cosmic Buddha, which on that mountain is embodied in that sulfurous rock. But theologically, everything in the universe, that rock, this piece of grass, you, me, is all part of the body of this cosmic Buddha. So we're all connected. And so the austerities and other kind of feats that, that I do in a cave meditating by myself alone can have reverberations throughout the whole universe, helping you, helping them, helping people on the other side of the world, helping people in other realms even of existence. Through this feat that you do when you self-mummify, you earn the right to be enshrined on the altar in a temple in the place where the statue of the Buddha might otherwise occupy, and your preserved body radiates merit and can grant miracles to believers. Meanwhile, you are believed to lie in a state of suspended animation called Nyujo, awaiting the end times when you will assist the future Buddha Maitreya in ushering in a paradise of enlightenment. So that's the whole idea behind it. Just to wrap up, you know, to encapsulate what we learned last time. 
So even though you know that this practice is, you know, you, you know full well that this is going to lead to your death, it's not thought of as suicide in the normal sense that we think of. It's not like feeling hopeless about life and seeking escape. Nor is it that Japanese kind of samurai kind of doing yourself in due to honor. It's not about honor either. It's neither of those. What it's really about, as we heard last time, is about gaining merit that can help others, all beings in the universe. And ultimately, that includes both your preserved body, maintaining its sort of life-animating force and radiating the power that people who come and pray near you can just kind of absorb and gain merit on their own. That, as well as being in this suspended state of animation until the end times when you can assist the future Buddha. The goal is altruism, basically. The goal is absolutely altruism. Yes, in the purest sense of self-sacrifice, yes. So, you know, that, on paper, I guess that makes sense, you know, from Buddhist theological standpoint, right? But imagine actually being a person who go who embarks upon this, you know? I can imagine maintaining the motivation to do that for about a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> but but these are people who who maintain this for eight and a half years, you know, or more, you know, depending on how you count all their austerities and all their training is typically it's towards the end of their life that they actually do the self-modification part. And it's it's you just imagine what must go into that kind of life where you where you are of a mentality that you believe that this is what the right thing to do is. This is how you make a difference in the universe. Is there a particular age of life when it was done or before which it was not done? Not or any kind of life stage thing like that? Not in any kind of stipulated way. Okay. But it seemed like most people were in later life, sure. like sixty plus. And it was sort of the accepted thing you did if you were a member of this particular sect or thought. It wasn't so much of, yeah, I think I'm going to try to achieve this more or less. It was just expected of you. Like, you joined the sect, you've been a monk all your life, so of course you're going to take these steps? Yeah, no, it was not in any way an expected thing really? that you would do that. No, it wasn't like, okay, yeah, my family wants me to get married now, I guess I'll get married. No, it wasn't like that <laughs> at all. It was rare even among Shugendo mm -hmm. and you know, a very, very limited number of people, more than you would expect, because you would expect zero would self-mummify themselves, so more than that, but a, a very limited number of people who ever attempted to do this, and an even more limited number who succeeded. Mm. Yeah, so it was only this especially dedicated, and all of them did it very much voluntarily, mm. of their own decisions. So what I really want to work on today is not so much theologically, why would people do this, but why would a person as a human being, you know, with all the complications that comes with that, why would they decide to do this? And I know that as you advance along the monk's path, you know, things change and you become less and less associated with your desires and your fears and stuff. And that, that definitely does actually affect a person's psychology and how you would make a decision making. So we can't just normally compare it to how you or I would feel in this situation. But nevertheless, there's always that root. It's definitely, at one point, they were just like you or I and decide to start on the Shugendo path. And then you, you always are going to carry with you the memories and the, the prior existing conditions that lead to the psychology of a person who would decide to do this, if that makes any sense. So that's kind of what I hope to focus on today with these stories. All right, so let's get started. So I have four stories today. 
And the first one that I'm going to tell is kind of, quote unquote, the typical story of one of these monks, which is admirable in a sense, but to be honest, not exactly super interesting. It kind of follows a typical pattern that's not full of a whole lot of drama necessarily, the way the Hollywood movie might be full of it. So I'm just going to tell that one relatively quickly to kind of give a sense of it. And then I have three stories that are the more selected to be the more colorful ones. And I'm going to let you choose which ones that you want to hear first. Okay, so all of these come from Ken Jeremiah's book, Living Buddhas. And they all come from Yamagata Prefecture in Japan, because that's what his book happened to be concentrating on. Although there are mummies from other prefectures as, as well. Okay, so first the typical story. This is the tale of Myokai Shonin. And you'll notice that their names usually end in a kai and then shonin. Shonin is kind of like saint. Mm. And I'm not sure if it's applied during your life or only after. I don't know. But it basically is like saint. It's an honorific. And kai, they almost always seem to, in this particular cult, Shugendo, they take names that end in kai. And I think it is in deference to the founder of Shingon, who's Kukai. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that's the rationale. Anyway, Myokai Shonin buried himself alive in 1863. So this is fairly late in the historical narrative, but quite typical in terms of how his life went. So he was born Suzuki Harutsugu. That was his secular name. He was born in 1820 from a family of rice farmers, but the family was likely of samurai heritage. And... As we go through these stories, you'll notice that samurai heritage seems to be fairly common. I'm not exactly sure why, but that seems to be a thing. His life is basically a series of unfortunate events, and that's common for a lot of these monks. They kind of they have lives that just fit right in in a lemony snicket novel. Life is so, suffering, do tell. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it does fit the yeah the themes of Buddhism, and perhaps there's some selection in what the temples chose to record as the eminent details of their lives yeah or the selection what kind of life you have that leads you to go to a monastery also that too yes so for example he loses his eyesight in 1834 due to a strange incident while playing in a river his eyes start to sting from the water and his eyes recover but they always continue to hurt later in 1836 a great famine hits japan that reduces the population by 10 percent jeez and it takes 20 years to recover from the pre-famine population size. Also, there's an epidemic around that same time, and his family is affected. He was the healthiest of his family, and so he had to end up working the fields all by himself, even though his eyes continued to hurt. But then in 1837, his eyes worsened, and he went completely blind and couldn't work. So now there's nobody left to cultivate the family fields. Their whole family falls into poverty. His mother passes one month later, his younger brother passes two years later, and the cost of all the funerals, combined with having very little income from the farm, plunges them into extreme debt. They have to borrow money from a local businessman, but they're unable to pay him back. Eventually, this guy turns to divine assistance. He hears about, you know, these monks on Mount Yudono and the austerities they perform, and so he goes to try his hand at that. So he performs austerities on Mount Udono. Is he from somewhere fairly local to that or far I away? I believe so. Okay. I'm, all of these probably, I imagine, start and end in Yamagata Prefecture. Okay. I don't think there was probably the whole lot of like all across Japan travel unless you were sure. in an army or something. 
1840, when he's 20 years old, he engages in things like fasts, abstaining from meat and fish, daily cold water ablutions, where that's where you take like a bucket of freezing water and pour it over yourself like hundreds of times so as a purification. Going blind at age 16 also, right? Good Lord. Yeah, it's pretty, quite young. Yeah. He's praying incessantly. And typically in a, one of these self-mummified monk stories, this is where you would expect the miracle to start happening. But in his case, it doesn't work. Everything that he does comes to naught. And he just, like, he tries harder and harder and harder, redoubles his efforts, but nothing gets better, neither for him nor for his family. So finally, he resolves to commit suicide because he's like, this is, this is not life, right? So he returns home and he uncovers an old sword that was handed down from his ancestors. And this is one reason why it's suspected that his family was of samurai ancestry. Mm-hmm. And he intends to cut his abdomen open with this sword. But it's too rusty and dull, and apparently that just won't do. I would hate to survive that attempt, though. That seems right. almost as bad yeah. as succeeding. Yes. So he has to have it polished, but he doesn't have any money to have it polished. And so he sells some old rope to get money. That's how impoverished he is. He's like selling rope, but that's still not enough. So while earning more money to commit seppuku, word starts to spread of these austerities that he's been doing on Yudono. And people start coming to see him because they hear that he's one of these holy men, right? And one man comes whose daughter had an eye disease. And the man prostrates before him, asks him for a prayer to the mountain deity on behalf of his daughter, and he agrees. He's like, well, you know, he's like, I'm nobody, but this doesn't work for me. But sure, I'll, I'll do this for you. So he goes up the slope to the shrine. And there he creates a talisman, writing the name of the girl while blind. I mean, he's blind right now. Yeah. Incites an incantation over it, possibly the Sanskrit seed syllable of the deity's name, all that kind of, you know, esoteric thing. Comes back down, gives it to the man. That same day, the daughter's eyesight recovers, according to the story. News starts to spread of this miracle, and pretty soon everybody's coming to ask him to pray for him. And finally, he's like, wow, I might have just found my purpose in life. I can't heal myself, but I can heal other people through these austerities that I'm doing, you know? So he becomes a priest in 1845, takes the name Myokai. That's his Buddhist name. And he becomes the first blind person who was ever initiated into Shigendo. Really? Apparently. That's according to Ken Jeremiah, at least. He has to memorize the sutras by hearing alone. He can't read them because he's blind. Things aren't set up for him. I'm not sure that would be harder. Mm. Well, I mean, you definitely are limited and you can't can't study on your own. True. And you really can't nod off. So that's one of the parts of this story that doesn't quite fit the pattern for everybody else. And it's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, at this point, now after that, we basically return to the typical narrative. So he practices austerities near a waterfall, uh, engages in a special diet, abstains from the five grains, eats only what grows near his hut, including butterburrs, which I looked up and is actually eaten only for medicinal purposes. And if you make an extract from it, it can actually cause liver damage or cancer if it's not prepared properly. So, Or fail to pass on messages to a hobbit. Yeah. Oh, butterburrs were in Tolkien? Yeah. Oh, Barlam and Butterbur. Keeper of the Prancing Pony. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Classing up this joint. Yep, classing it up. Well, we had Star Wars last time, so now yeah. we're bringing Tolkien this time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Austerities. According to legend, he manages to stop a storm only by prayer. Other miracles are associated with him, like a woman who is having a hell of a time with a water pump, but as soon as he happens by, it suddenly starts working for some reason. <laughs> 
sorry. Um, Mine also, out of the gutter. <laughs> a bunch of things like this come by, including after Commodore Perry, the American, right, shows up in 1853, there's an epidemic of cholera that spreads through Japan, and he spends a lot of time praying for the sick during that time. I didn't actually hear like a specific result, like him saving everybody or anything, but I think it's implied that he must have helped somehow. And finally, he decides to self-mummify in 1863. He buries himself alive, and we can visit him today, meet him, as a believer would say, at Myojuin Temple in Yonezawa in Yamagata Prefecture of Japan. And that is a story of Myokai Shonin, a typical story of one of these monks. So you can go thank him. You can go thank him. You can ask for him to help you with your eyes. Hmm. That's a very common specific thing you would ask one of these monks. For some reason, eyes come up a lot in these stories. What was in those rivers? I don't, Parasites, I don't know. Parasites, I'm assuming. I don't know. It could be something like that, yeah. Also, an interesting thing that I thought was... So the thing about him being able to stop a storm by prayer... When you think of, um, you know, Buddhist monks praying or chanting, they, what exactly that means can vary from tradition to tradition. And in this tradition, it's very much like just basically straight up casting a spell. Like there are stories of monks like him who are able to pray a bird out of the sky or pray a person to death and back to life again. Hmm. So it's it's just like, you know, casting level five, whatever spell from the you know back of the player's handbook. Okay, so now, should we get on to the more colorful stories? I liked that one, actually. But Yeah, that was uh, sweet, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like chicken soup for the soul, except... Yeah, except you have a mummy at the end. And abstaining yeah. from the chicken, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you have a mummy yeah. at the end. Roots and fruits fruit, yeah. <laughs> Vegan bark for the soul. <laughs> right. Okay, so I've got three stories for you to choose from. I'll let you choose which ones you want to hear first, okay? Okay. Here are the three titles that I've come up with them. The first story is The Perfect Samurai. The second story is The Farmer Fuck-Up. <laughs> and the third story is A Japanese Abelard and Heloise. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Well. So which would you like to hear first? Are, are we I want to hear Farmer Fuck-Up. Yeah, Farmer Fuck-Up sounds fuck pretty up? great. Okay. <laughs> it also was released for the Famicom system in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> Which became Nintendo later. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was redubbed as Super Mario Brothers 2 in the United States. <laughs> started as, yeah, the original name for it was Farmer Fuck Up. Uh, yeah, Farmer Fuck Up. It explains all the animated radishes. Yeah, yeah all the beats and things, yeah. yes. Okay. <laughs> all right, so um, this one is about a monk whose Buddhist name is Shinyokai Shonin. So he's born in 1688, and his name is Shindo Nizaemon, and he is born to a farming family, which is of higher status than a typical medieval peasant, so not like serfs, don't think like that kind of like bottom rung of society kind of thing, because in Japan, they were actually higher than the artisans and the merchants, the farmers were. Hmm. You were fairly respectable as a farmer, but you were still very much a commoner. You were by no means approaching nobility as a farmer. So he was not in any way a fuck up in being a farmer, as in doing the work of a farmer. He seemed perfectly competent at that. In fact, he worked the family farm without note and was known for his filial piety. 
what he was a fuck up at was the etiquette of being a farmer in an age of samurai. Oh, mm. yes. And this is the un- very unfortunate part of his story. Don't throw chickens at passing lords. There. <laughs> so while walking along one day on the road, while carrying a walking staff and a sack of manure, presumably to fertilize his field, a samurai was walking towards him. And as they passed, he accidentally allowed himself to touch the samurai. Now, this was a grave insult. And what's the date on this again? Uh, 1688. Oh, okay. Right. I heard okay. 18. Yeah. 1688. Yeah. Surprise. The one yeah. before was an 18. Okay. This is a 16. Yeah, so we're in Edo-era yeah. Japan. Edo-era Japan. So more classically the age of samurai. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much in the shogunate, yes. But I believe by 1688, this would have been the time where it's after all the wars of unification and at the point where there's relative peace. And so you have to distinguish yourself from the commoner's class in other ways. One of which is becoming highly cultivated in poetry and calligraphy and all these things. And another Tea one, ceremony. which is being a super prick. The other one being a super prick and <laughs> very, very jealously guarding your honor. Yes. Um, this is also the era where you had a policy called Kiritsute Gomen, which gives the right to a samurai to kill a commoner for any perceived insult. Being a super prick was very much part of being a samurai in this era of Japan. So, they're walking along, cross paths, he accidentally touches the samurai. And it's not specified whether it's with the sack of manure, or whether something spills on him, or if he just accidentally brushes him like with the hem of his you know, kimono or whatever, yeah. his work kimono or whatever he would be wearing. But, Dickie's brand kimono. <laughs> <laughs> Dickie's kimono. Regardless, the samurai is gravely insulted, draws his sword, and makes to cleave him in two. Well, Nizayamon is terrified, of course, and just out of instinct, probably, parries the sword strike with his staff, his walking staff that he has, and then he goes on just, like, probably just, you know, he's just out of his mind in terms of, like, adrenaline and everything, and he just starts beating the samurai, and he beats the samurai and knocks him down, and the samurai later dies from his injuries. (laughs) So, he went from a little fuck-up to a big fuck-up. To be fair, he almost died from the little one, so there's not a lot of incentive to... Yeah, oh, I mean... Yes, that's true. That's very much true. You've got nothing left to lose once you're already going to be cleaved in two. Yeah. But, but yeah, now he's at the point where now he has killed a samurai. And that is definitely a no-no. Bury so. him in the manure that you've got. This is the fox, the goose, and the grain thing all oh, over again. Oh, you solved it. Well, yeah. maybe he was not that clever. We'll see. Anyway, so he's like, shit, 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 shit. What am I going to do, right? With the shit, 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 shit. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So it was absolutely against the law for a commoner to kill a samurai, self-defense or not, and the punishment for this would almost certainly be death. So what he does is he flees to Dainichibo Temple and is sheltered by the head priest there. And now in this era of Japan, certain temples are protected by a kind of policy or or custom or law, I'm not sure which, called extraterritoriality, which meant that the temple didn't have to follow shogunal law. Hmm. They could actually govern themselves. Hmm. So they were allowed to, I guess, say no to the shogun's men that come to get him because uh, their law doesn't apply there. In, In like ancient Rome, you could flee to a temple and be protected, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that like 
it was sacrosanct ground and you couldn't spill blood in there, that kind of idea, like in the West. Apparently, it had something more to do with this self-governing of the temples. Mm-hmm. It was more of uh, lines of demarcation? I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So at the temple, when he's just going to camp out there because otherwise he steps outside, you know, and he's just going to get taken in, right? So it's like the Ecuadorian embassy. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Topical. At the temple, he discovers a man there who had mummified himself, who was worshipped as a living Buddha named Zenkai Shonin, who is now at the Kanon Temple in Niigata Prefecture today. Wait, they moved him? Apparently. Wow. Yeah. So you can go visit him today. Now, remember, now remember what we said last time about how weird this was, even at the time, for most other Japanese people, because this is a fringe cult of a fringe cult. And it's like Christians encountering snake handlers, right? So him encountering this self-mummified guy in the temple would have been very disturbing, I think. He's probably from a local area and might have heard of it, so it's not completely new to him, but still, I think it would be pretty disturbing. Is it wrong that I really want to write a piece of fan fiction about some kind of old primitive Baptists way up in the Appalachians in Kentucky that cast weather spells and handle snakes? (laughs) And could pray a bird out of the sky? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And probably have, like, some kind of weird NRA martial arts. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, all right, that'll work good. Priya, will you write this for me? <sighs> Where's that beer? Are you already ghostwriting your imagined fanfic? I do this all the time. She's the writer. I'm just, I just come up with scenarios. And okay. She You're just the them. big picture guy. Okay. Yeah, you know, this, this, this was, I just don't like how you keep trying to get co-author credit here. I mean, sure, you originate the idea, but I have to find all the euphemisms for dick. <laughs> I'm running out. I can't just say turgid member every time. How about a woman who's having a hell of a time? <sighs> so this Sorry. later, dear. So this self-mummified monk, this Zenkai, was originally a logger whose livelihood and his entire family was wiped out in a great flood. And he turned to the temple and after 57 years of ascetic practices, decided to self-mummify. That natural disaster bit is something that we've already seen in the previous story and is going to come up again and again and again in these stories. In fact, starting in 1782, it comes up in this very story for an Man, a series of natural disasters would confront our farmer fuck-up, now going by the religious name... Let me say that whole thing over again. In fact, starting in 1782, it's going to come up even in this current story for Nizayaman. A series of natural disasters would confront our farmer fuck-up, now going by the religious name Shinyokai. He would be actually age 94 by this time. I was wondering, because I thought the last date was 1688. Yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah. So, fast forward through most of his career at this temple, right? And we're given no details on his life at the temple. That part's not preserved. So we don't know if he became, you know, an accomplished ascetic monk, or if he was always just... That guy on the couch who's just there because if he steps outside, the Shogun's men are going to get him. Right. And he's just kind of like the one they always laugh at or something. I, we don't know. We don't know. Hey, Shinyokai, if you meet the Buddha on the road, try not to get shit on him. <laughs> oh, or beat him to death. <laughs> yeah. So we just don't know. But anyway, what he did at the end of his life eclipsed the rest of his career, apparently. And so here's what we get. Right. So 1782, poor harvests all over Japan. 1783, freezing rain and severe flooding in northern Japan, where we are, and more food shortage as a result of this. 1783, August 5th, 
Mount Asama erupts. Eep. Yes, a volcano. And this mountain is in central Japan on the border of Gunma and Nagano prefectures, and it kills nearly 20,000 people locally. Oh, God. But also throws pumice and ash into the sky, causing cold weather all over Japan and further exasperating the food shortage. It's already happening. Right. Oh, God. Resulting in the Tenmei famine, where hundreds of thousands die from starvation or disease. Jeez. 1784, 30 domains in northern Japan report no harvest at all. Other areas report 40% decline in production. Famine goes on for another several years. The Shogun's census records show that altogether the famine causes a loss of 1,119,159 people, or 4.3% of the population. So at age 96, in response to all of this, our farmer fuck-up decides to make something of his life and sacrifices himself for others. So this is not something that you engage upon lightly, it seems. Like, it's bad things are happening in the world and you're like, somebody has to do something and then you're like, I'm stepping up to the plate. I'm that person who's going to do something about this. Also, yeah. Incidentally, already at this time in Japan, the population was about the size of California today. Really? That much? Wow. Doing the math, it would be like, or at least California when we were kids. It's probably grown since then. Wow. So imagine 4.3% of California's population just wiped out. Hmm. Or a million people. I mean... Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. God. So at age 96, in response to all this, he buries himself in question mark without any special diet or special exercises? Question mark? I don't know. It's just not recorded the way Kent Jeremiah tells it. Maybe he meant it to be implied. I don't know. Hey, Shin, good luck. Good luck down there. You did remember to, you know, mummify yourself for eight years, right? Oh, for God's sake. Because at age 96, I... I don't think you expect to last another 8.2 years, right? So, I I don't know. But a lot of the stories, that part is omitted. So I can't really tell if they engaged in a diet or not. You might have already been doing it since 88, although that's still ambitious. Yeah. It it is possible. You really talk about your convictions there. Yeah. Three years later, he is found to be mummified, and then he is enshrined at Dainichibo Temple, same temple where he was, Mm -hmm. which you can visit him there today in Asahi Village of Yamagata Prefecture. But uh, this one, we actually get a description of the condition of his body Hmm. today. So here's the quote that Ken Jeremiah gives from, uh, I believe it's, like there's a quote within a quote. Anyway, it's, it's from academics that have studied this, right? Okay, so he says, The condition of the body has deteriorated with time. Today the bones are fragile and there is no longer any flesh left on his face and head. However, his body and hands are still well-preserved without artificial means. The skin is a dark brown color, and it is covered with white spots. The cadaver weighs 6 kilograms and is 156.9 centimeters in height. The blood group is AB. The inferior aperture of the pelvis is wide open, and part of the diaphragm and urinary bladder remain. But there is no evidence that the brain and viscera were extracted. The mummy is in a crooked sitting posture, almost falling backward. And then he gives a reference to Sakurai et al. He must have been quoting from, and then continues, However, the body does not appear to be falling backward. It is positioned in meditative posture, and it is dressed in orange sacerdotal robes. Is that the right way to pronounce that? Sacerdotal? Yeah. Snickerdoodle. (laughs) Snickerdoodle. Quick question. Sure. Um, I know it's a tradition in for, for Catholic saints who are, you know, dead to periodically have their vestments swapped out depending on the liturgical season. 
Do these guys, um... Yes, they are taken care of. Hmm. And I'm not sure the extent to which, but I know at least that their robes are regularly cleaned and changed. And I don't know how you do that very gingerly without, like, snapping bones and getting little bits off, you know. Yeah, because doing that, that with a skeleton is one thing, but an I actual... I do not know how they manage that. Jeez. This is a culture that came up with the sharpest things ever invented and lives in houses made out of paper, however. So... Well, yeah, if anybody could do it. Yeah, good point. So that is the story of Shin-yokai Shonin. So, there you go. We've got two other stories left. We have The Perfect Samurai and A Japanese Abelard and Heloise. So, Are we going to get to them all? Let's let's just go ahead and record them all and we'll see okay. what fits. I would save Abelard and Heloise for last. Yeah, yeah especially the if there's Samurai. actual Abelard and Heloise stuff, as in... All right! Yes! <laughs> all right, so we're going to do The Perfect Samurai then? Before we get to the record nonsensu. Sorry, I just wanted to get Irogoro nonsense who I'm recording. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> oh, it's a, no, it's a wonderful, wonderful Japanese genre. Irogoro nonsense. So it sounds like uh, nonsense that Ero is usually like erotic. Mm-hmm. Erotic, but I don't know Goro. Goru? Goru. Nonsense erotic gore? Yep. So it's like slasher porn? Yep. Oh, wow. Okay, very nice. <laughs> it at least was a thing. I don't know if to the extent it still is. Uh-huh. Also sort of I'm sure it a is. sensationalist media genre around the turn of the 19th and 20th century. Oh, like in the, uh, yeah, in the floating world kind of stuff. So that counts? Yeah, there, there was true crime, Aragorn on census stories, and... Mm. Cut okay. off somebody's dick, try to do stuff with it afterwards. Keep it in a bag, <laughs> go to hotel rooms, do a lot of drugs. Well, you just wait. It's my dick in a bag. <laughs> exactly. Or a little lacquer bot. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh. Okay, ready? Okay, yeah. Okay, so we're going to do the perfect samurai then? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a story of Honmyokai Shonin. And this is from 1623 to 1681. So we're in 17th century Japan now. Which is still well in the shogun era. That's that's like high Tokugawa shogun. Right. Right, yeah. Okay. So he is actually going to be the oldest of the mummies that we're going to be talking about today. Though not the first, as we heard, goes back to like the, maybe the 11th century or 12th, but the oldest that we're talking about in these sets of stories. He was born Togashi Kichihyoe, and he was adopted by one Togashi Umanosuke and trained as a samurai. So I assume that the person who adopted him was a samurai. Yeah. He wasn't originally one, but became one that way, through adoption. He became a vassal of Lord Sakai, the daimyo of Tsuroka, so like the lord of that region, northern Japan. And here we're going to get, you know, uh, we have to go a little bit into what it means to be a samurai and how that plays into this whole mindset here. So uh, we heard a little bit of it in the last story with the whole honor thing and also, you know, having that kind of need to distinguish yourself from the commoners and maintain a certain... Well, you maintain your status. But another thing about it is you need to maintain your fighting edge. And how do you do that in an era when there's no fighting, right? So what is the essence of a warrior's fighting edge? Discipline. So that's a big part of what it's about to have all the, like 
very rigorous, you know, like calligraphy, tea ceremonies, everything needs, everything has to be done exactly so, all that kind of thing, is you're maintaining a mindset that is ready at any moment to basically, you know, just, you know, even if never in your life the need arises. Mm -hmm. yeah. All that plays into what it means to be a samurai in this era. Also, the virtues of loyalty and self-sacrifice, always big in any warrior culture, super huge for samurai. The origin of the term samurai comes from the word saburai, which means one who serves nobility. And the samurai were originally basically like the retainers of these lords. Mm -hmm. And it may seem strange and foreign to us to kind of follow ideals of something like loyalty, even unto death. But you have to remember that this is a feudal culture. And, you know, you can go back and if you if you ever listened to the episode of our medieval Irish Geish series where Andre talked about the development of the honor culture among those warriors, you can see how important it was for them to keep their honor and demonstrate that they are willing to fight side by side with you, not abandon you when need be. And you do all in times that are peace times, you do all these other honor-bound things in order to continue to demonstrate that you're reliable on the battlefield. So, loyalty becomes a really big thing. By the way, the samurai ideal is still really big in Japan as an influence on culture, but people don't normally act like it, but it's, it's still an influence in culture the same way that cowboyism is an influence on American culture. Even though most of us don't act like cowboys, we still identify with that as like, that somehow embodies the ideals that we somehow strive for. And it's also a stereotype other people have of Americans too, right? And... But it's at least partly true, right? And but it, but it fits with like the samurai being a stereotype of people that people have of Japanese. Right? Sure, and yeah. someone who's not Japanese would say, "Hmm, this person who's Japanese is being extra super meticulous with all of their packing and uh -huh. putting things away and making sure things are sharp." Uh -huh. It's a samurai thing, the same way people would think. George Bush, he's such a cowboy. Look how he doesn't. Right. Yeah, and I think it would depend on which person you asked. If you asked that Japanese person whether they would say, yes, it is a samurai thing. I think many Japanese would. Sure. But many others probably wouldn't. So, yeah. So, anyway, Kichihyoe is a samurai because he's adopted, you know, into this family and trained as a samurai. Um, but note that, you know, he's not one by birth. So he's not just granted this. He has to kind of earn it in a way. And so, in some ways, I can see how him being extra dedicated to demonstrating his loyalty and his virtue and his discipline in the same way like in star trek Worf is like the perfect klingon but he was raised by humans and it's almost like he goes overboard with his klingon virtues to demonstrate that no i'm a real klingon it's kind of like that so what do we do next we've done star wars and lord of the rings and star trek <laughs> yeah and, and yugioh references how much more nerd shit can we pile onto this hey it's dead ideas come on <laughs> so yeah he, it's almost like he's got something to prove Right now, in 1660, and he would be age 37 by our counting methods, which I'll continue with here. But Japanese would actually consider him 38. The Japanese consider you to be one when you're born, so that means they're always one year older by their reckoning. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's like the first floor, second floor, ground floor, European American divide. The gestation is yeah. nine months. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that it's from conception so much as just you start at one versus starting at zero. That seems to be more, be more yeah. what it's like. Yeah. So anyway, this is why I don't get Buddhism. In 1660, at this age, Kichihyoe's lord becomes terribly sick. And sickness is, of course, not an enemy that you can just slice with a sword. 
So what's a samurai to do? What he does is he hears about these austerities that these ah, Yamabushi mm, are yeah. doing. And he's like, there's a way that I can demonstrate my loyalty to my lord. To demonstrate that I am the perfect samurai, right? And so he goes to train in the Seninzawa, the Swamp of Immortals. Performs austerities daily. He prays for his lord's recovery. And sure enough, Lord Sakai soon recovers completely. That's so what happens perfect... when you lift an X-Wing with your mind. <laughs> See, I was going to say the perfect samurai dual classes in cleric and gets to the level where he can cast heal. Yeah. <laughs> no, there you go. Yeah. Was and... it an X-Wing? Yeah. What, what do you mean what was, was an X-Wing? Of course. <laughs> he was... Okay. I'm not actually a Star Wars nerd, I'm sorry. You don't have to be a nerd, you just have to watch the damn movie! I love you, I'm sorry, I'm just, okay. So anyway, Kichihyoe wonders what else he's able to do. You know, I, I managed to heal my lord, what else can I do? You know, I healed my right? lord, I lifted the X-Wing, what else? <laughs> exactly. You have so to defeat sees... the emperor. <laughs> Wait, it starts Vader with the Shokan. Yeah, duh. <laughs> Seems to realize that there's more that he can do with this talent that he has. He enters seminary at Chirenji Temple a year later in 1661, near Mount Yudono, the one with the sulfurous orange rock. Right. He trains for a year, then leads a secluded life in the Swamp of Wizards for 11 years. <laughs> what? <laughs> Great phrase. The Swamp of Wizards? Yes. That's literally what... No, I know. It's just so wonderful to hear it said yeah. out loud as part of an actual sort of historical text. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> we secluded life in the Swamp of Wizards for eight years. <laughs> Ken Jeremiah translates it that yeah. way. No, it's, yep. it works. <laughs> so, he takes the Buddhist name Hon Myokai, practices severe ascetics for 4,000 days, rebuilds a temple that had been destroyed by fire... With the Force. <laughs> with the Force. A temple to Fudo Myo, which is you know when you go into a um you see you go past the gates of a, a Buddhist temple in Japan and yeah, it's got like those the... kind of fierce looking demony guys yeah, with the swords. Yeah. yeah, he's one of them. So he's not actually that this is a spirit that's not actually considered a Buddha, but it's like a guardian deity. And they're associated with the four cardinal directions, right? I believe so. And but Fudo Myo is the you can think of him kind of like the the patron deity of Shugendo, this cult. Hmm. Yeah. So he rebuilds this temple to Fido Myo called Honmyoji, which would become his final resting place. Eventually he decides to self-mummify. And he says, this is in the story, I don't I don't know if it comes from a text or not, I assume so, quote, I have decided to become a living Buddha. If people of future ages are devoted, I will grant whatever request that they may have. And then he continues the practice of mokujiki-gyo, or tree-eating, abstention from cereals, for about nine years. He has himself buried alive on May 8th, 1681, at age 58 by our counting, 59 wow. by Japanese counting. And after death, his body is dug up, then dried with charcoal fire and incense smoke, and then reburied. So that, that deviates a little bit from the pattern of how they usually do it. I don't, maybe he wasn't mummified enough at the time. Hmm. We after, hickory smoke him for flavor. After, yeah. After two years, his body is disinterred again and found completely preserved. Then he is enshrined at Honmyoji, the temple where he, which he rebuilt with his own hands, where he is venerated today for curing eye diseases and other illnesses. And you can visit him today and meet Honmyokai Shonin, 
at Asahimura or Asahi Village, Yamagata Prefecture, which is the same village as the other right, story. Right, I thought so. So you, when you were in Japan, you didn't see the big sulfurous rock, did you? No, I did not. Oh, Why not? Come on. I don't know. I, I don't. Not sure. I knew that it existed at the time. Sorry. And there, in it, I imagine you probably can't go there. Okay. But we're all manifestations of the cosmic Buddha. I, yeah, even even us, yeah. But I want to see a big sulfurous rock. I might have seen it. I don't know. <laughs> How could you do it, dude? I didn't know it was the cosmic Buddha. Dang it! <laughs> so anyway, we're so sorry. We're so, so sorry. So anyway, we're at time. So I think we should um, probably cap it off there. Okay. So that seems like about a good place to end this episode. We do have one more story. So we'll go on to the next episode for that. Everybody catch up with us again next time for the story of the Japanese Abelard and Heloise. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, If you like what we're doing, remember to contribute to the show. Show your support uh, at Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. You can get your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing in exchange for supporting the show. So thank you, Nick and Anna, once again, for being on the show. And if you do $20,000 worth of patronage, uh, we will smoke Nick like a Smithfield ham. (laughs) I didn't consent to this. It's not. It's for the greater good. Jeez, I was just going to try and get enough money for us to go visit Japan, take a pilgrimage to a giant sulfurous rock, and take pictures. We're going to smoke you under the rock. It'll be great. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah, it's multitasking. As long as you get to the rock. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we can take pictures. We still take pictures. That's true. Yeah. All right. right, We're good then. Cool. (laughs) All right. We'll see you next time, everybody. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Boing!